I'm a little curious to see what else is under this table. Um, little Mary Poppins. All right. Uh, good morning. It's good to see all of you here this morning. Uh, Todd's away, so um, you're, get, you're getting plan B. But, uh, <laughs> um, so good to be with you guys, and so good and excited about bringing the word to you this morning. Um, I should probably first start by thanking Gavin Macbeth uh, for filling in for me two weeks ago. My wife and I um, were able to get away to a conference, and it was a much-needed break. Gavin, thanks so much. Um, I've heard great things about, uh, about your sermon, and in fact, so good that I booked you for next February, uh, first, first Sunday next February, um, got you penciled in, so thanks again. Um, all right, I'd like, like for us to read our passage this morning, um, and if you have a print copy of Scripture, let me encourage you to use that. If you only have a phone, that's also fine. Um, I'm, getting, I'm kind of getting to the point now where I want to use my phone less and less uh, because it just provides all kinds of distractions. So if you've got a print copy of God's Word, if you would take that with me, and uh, let's read our passage this morning. Okay, so our, our passage this morning is found in Matthew chapter 11, verses 20. Give you a second to find it. And I'll give ourselves. So, uh, for those of you who don't know, we recently changed our soundboard. And uh, the, two, the two wizards, Bob and Bill, who run the soundboard, uh, this is the first Sunday they're not with us. So, um, we've, we've prayed over it, and uh, we'll see how it goes. All right. We're going to start in verse, verse 20. Then he, be, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, they would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and reveal them to little children. Yes, Father, for such is your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Would you pray with me? Father, we need to hear a word from you this morning. God, would you speak to us through your word? Lord, would you show us marvelous things from your word? 
God, we don't, we don't come lightly to your word. We realize that it's living and active. Lord, it, it speaks to us at the very core of who we are and knows our hidden thoughts. God, would they be exposed? Would, the pride, would our pride be exposed? God, you said you give grace to the humble. Lord, may we be a humble people that receive your grace. God, I just pray right now for the sound system. Lord, would there be no distractions here this morning? Lord, we want to hear from you. We don't want to be distracted. Father, we just pray that you would help, that you would work that out. Be with the guys in the back as they try to figure this out. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for every, I thank you for every person who's here in this room. They're not here by accident. Father, I pray that you would speak to us by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so our passage today is full of disparate parts. In fact, uh, each of these parts probably could, could deserve its own sermon. First of all, in verses 20 to 24, we see Jesus scolding the towns in which he ministered for their utter indifference to his message of good news. Then in verses 25 to 27, we see Jesus pointing to his sovereignty making the astounding claim that he alone has the power to reveal the plan of redemption to those who would listen and repent. And then lastly, in verses 28 to 30, we find Jesus issuing a call to his disciples to find rest for their souls in him. An invitation that's, that's unique to Matthew's gospel. It's not found in any of the other gospels. So before I get started, I'd, I'd be remiss to not point out that here at Hope, we like to focus on what we call and what some people have called expositional preaching. And we're not opposed to topical sermons. We've, I've preached plenty of topical sermons. We've preached topical sermons. Uh, but the thrust of what we do is on expositional preaching. And expositional preaching, it's, it's a little bit like a hike. When you go on a hike, you know, you're just one step at a time, verse by verse. You're just going through the Bible. But like a hike, sometimes as you're walking step by step, you know, some of the terrain is pretty smooth. It's pretty easy. The trail's well marked. But there are other times when you're walking along that path that it gets a little rocky, right? One thing I love about New England is there's so many great places to hike. We all know this. Like, you set out on a path. Before you know it, it's a little steep. It gets a little harder. Well, I think we've reached the point in the hike in Matthew where we're going to have to work a little bit harder. Uh, the beauty of expositional preaching, of course, is that you kind of get this full understanding of the whole journey. You don't get to pick and choose the trails that you like, what's most comfortable for you. So here, in this passage, we're faced with a portrait of Jesus that's raw and unfiltered, but at the same time is also gentle and welcoming. The title of my sermon this morning, as you may have seen, is Not the Jesus You Thought You Knew. You know, A.W. Tozer, in his little book on God entitled Knowledge of the Holy, in the very first sentence, the very first chapter, he says this. He says, the first thing that comes into your mind when you think of God is the most important thing about you. And I think it's safe to say that it's probably equally true for the Christian. And I would suggest to you this morning that the first thing that comes into your mind when you think of Jesus of Nazareth is the most important thing about you. How could this not be true? If we're anything as believers, we are first and foremost followers of Jesus. So when you think of the Jesus you know, 
what comes to your mind? Is it, is it Jonathan Rumi from The Chosen? A kind moral teacher? Is it maybe someone who, like Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr., suffered and were murdered for a just cause? Now, I love reading memoirs and biographies. They're my favorite books to read. In fact, I'm on my third biography this year. Um, I'm actually currently uh, listening to uh, Jonathan Igg's biography of Martin Luther King Jr. I, I highly recommend it. Biographies are great, and if they're good, they give you a more accurate depiction of a person. All of a sudden, the person you thought you knew turns out to be nothing like you thought you thought. You get to kind of look under the hood. You get to look behind the scenes. And suddenly you're, you're confronted with the good, the bad, and the ugly. And it's precisely because the lives of human beings are good, bad, and ugly that biographies can also be dangerous. Uh, you might not like what you see. I remember one time reading a biography on Jimmy Stewart. And uh, I love It's a Wonderful Life. I still love It's a Wonderful Life, even though I read the biography on Jimmy Stewart. Uh, and uh, needless to say, Jimmy Stewart's a great guy, but he's, he's not exactly a, a saint. And I was given this different picture of Jimmy Stewart than I thought. I was like, I had George Bailey in my head. I was like, man, what, what could be so alarming about this guy? Um, but I was, I, was, you know, I was struck by the fact that, yes, he is human as well. And you know, after reading about his life, my impression of Jimmy Stewart was now re rooted in reality even though I sometimes preferred the blissfully ignorant George Bailey-esque view of Jimmy Stewart to the actual person. But the cold truth is, is that many of us wouldn't want our personal lives scrutinized or published for the world to see, right? Now, unlike Jimmy Stewart and others we might read about, read about there are no skeletons in Jesus' closet, but we can sometimes fall into the trap of fashioning a Jesus in our minds that has no relation to the Jesus of the Bible. We like the peacemaking Jesus, and we kind of gloss over the Jesus who said things like, I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother, like we read about just a few short weeks ago. As we look at our passage this morning, we see that Jesus defies any rendering that we might want to paint of him. We're first confronted by a portrait of Jesus that may even feel a little bit uncomfortable to us. In verses 20 to 24, Jesus is essentially taking a page from John the Baptist's playbook, pronouncing judgment on the cities in which he spent much of his adult ministry. Much like a street preacher that you might find downtown, he emphatically denounces the cities for ignoring his calls to repentance despite the miracles that he performed in their midst. Look with me, if you will, at verses 20 to 24 again. It says this, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Now just a, a note here, the word repent is the Greek word metanoio. And this Greek word metanoio carries with it the idea that it's not just turning away from sin, but it's turning away from sin and turning to God. I really like the New Living Translations version here. It kind of captures this, where it says, Because they hadn't repented of their sins and turned to God. So then verse 21, Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which, by the way, Tyre and Sidon were some Mediterranean port cities 
whose boundaries stretch all the way up to Galilee. These were cities that were renowned for their wealth and their trade, but they're also renowned for their wickedness. Very wicked cities. They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And then just one more side note, sackcloth and ashes, what is that? Sackcloth, if, when someone was remorseful back in that, in that period of time, they would clothe themselves in what amounted to camel's hair, sackcloth, and then they would also bathe in ashes to show repentance and remorse. So they would have, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it'll be more, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works done in you, then done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. There's a lot here. There's a lot that could be said about these verses, but for our purposes this morning, I want to draw your attention to three striking implications from these verses. So what's, what are they? Number one, as you can see from the map on the screen in just a minute, these towns are all very close to one another. In fact, most historians and archaeologists tell us that Chorazin was a mere two miles from Capernaum, for example. So even though the 72 disciples that Jesus sent out, they went across all the region, Jesus conducted his healing ministry very close to his hometown of Capernaum. To give some context, it would be like Jesus conducting the bulk of his ministry. Maybe his hometown was in Winchester going to Arlington or Burlington or something like that. So what, what are we to make of this? What's going on? Well, I don't think we should make too much of it, but I think we can draw some conclusions. For starters, we see that Jesus, unlike many popular preachers today, resisted the pull to accelerate the growth of his ministry. If Jesus were around today, he most certainly would have been asked to start a podcast or go, go on the preaching circuit. Jesus, uh, I, I think we need to do a book deal. Um, you know, I've got this online magazine. I need you, you know, can we get some articles from you? But Jesus was different, right? Jesus was on a mission. He was on a mission to do his Father's will. He was on a mission that included going to Jerusalem to suffer and to ultimately die a criminal's death on a cross. Not, not only that, but Jesus is the epitome of calm. He's the kind of person who, who sleeps on a boat in the middle of a violent storm. He's not stressing out over his next move. He's not, as we like to say here in Boston, running on Duncan. It's not Jesus. You know, I was listening to a sermon a little while ago of a well-known pastor, and uh, in the middle of the sermon, he, he dropped like a witty line or something like that. He's like, oh, that was pretty cool. And um, and he, he, he made a comment. He said, uh, you know, all right, branding team, if you're listening, I want you to pick this up and we'll put it on a T-shirt or something like that. So to be fair, I think he was kind of saying it in a joking manner, but I can't see Jesus having a branding team. In fact, on some occasions after healing people, he actually tells them, don't tell anybody. Quite a few occasions. Ultimately, it was his father's will that he perform his miracles within a small radius just as it was his father's will to reveal the truth of the gospel to some and not others. And we're going to see that a little bit later. Even though Jesus' ministry was concentrated in just in a small area, where surely everybody would have known about this prophet from Capernaum, most of those who witnessed his miracles did not believe. 
And there's no reason to believe that those further away would have responded any differently. Now, on a purely practical note, some of you here this morning would do well to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus here. And I'm, I'm talking to myself in many ways. Jesus changed the world, and yet he wasn't spending his days on the road reading the latest time management book on how to get more out of less time. He didn't take on more than his physical body could handle. He made time for the most important relationships in his life. For some of you, and this certainly does not apply to most of you, you may just have too many rocks in the jar. You may need to slow down and be content with where Jesus has you. So a second implication that we see from this text is that not only was Jesus not concerned about making a name for himself, but we see that some of his greatest declarations of judgment were reserved not for those who visibly opposed him, like the scribes and the Pharisees, but for those who cheerfully accepted his message but had no intention of following it. Guys, this is so important, and this is so vital that we understand this today. Mark 12, 37. Mark 12, 37 says this in response to Jesus' teaching in the temple. It says that a large crowd listened to him with great delight. Preach it, Jesus. Yes, amen, that's right. Let's hear it. Keep going. Yes, I agree with that. They were giving lip service, but not what Martin Luther King liked to call life service. The temptation here is to assume that these towns, particularly the town of Capernaum, for which Jesus saves some of his greatest and harshest, his harshest rebukes, are reprobate to the core and incapable of hearing any message of asceticism or nonviolence or repentance from sin. After all, he's comparing them to Sodom. We all know about Sodom. You'll remember that the Bible tells us that not even 10 righteous people could be found in the entire city of Sodom. How low can you go? You can't get much lower than Sodom. And yet Jesus says that those who listen to him in Capernaum would be brought down to the depths of Hades or the place of the dead. By the way, this ultimately bore itself out. So Tyre and Sidon, you might know our cities in modern-day Lebanon. The ruins of Bethsaida have been found, but there's very, very little trace of Capernaum. It's very likely that the people of Capernaum were not rabidly antagonistic to Jesus' message or, or his presence in their town, only indifferent. This should be a lesson to us a Pollyanna disposition towards the gospel and Jesus' kingship is just as condemnatory, if not more so, than a heart that is directly opposed to the message of the cross. How many in our churches today sit idly in the pews Sunday after Sunday with smiling faces, heads nodding in agreement, only to hide hearts that are far from God, hearts not wanting to be bothered by the inconvenient call to the changed lifestyle that Jesus is offering. How many in our churches today have fooled themselves into thinking that a worn-out pew is a ticket to heaven? How many in our churches today are more concerned with pleasing their spouse or children by attending church than pleasing God? 
How many in our churches today give lip service to God on Sunday, and yet they become tongue-tied on Monday? How many in our churches today continue to water roots of bitterness, convincing themselves that they're justified in doing so, because to forgive would be to acknowledge defeat? And how many in our churches today have nothing but positive things to say about the church as long as everybody looks like them, but are now nowhere to be found when the church is, quote, not what it used to be. If this is you, I challenge you, wake up. Get up from your slumber. Don't be satisfied by a tepid Christianity, which is really no Christianity at all. Indifference in the Christian faith is not a matter of preference. It is a matter of life and death. Don't be like the people of Capernaum, who covered their momentary thoughts of guilt with sunscreen, thinking that they wouldn't get burned, only in the end to hear those chilling words of Jesus, depart from me, for I never knew you. Third implication. We also see in these verses the sobering reality that there are degrees of judgment. Those who have been afforded more opportunity to hear and understand the gospel will be judged more harshly. Verses 22 and 24 both clearly tell us that it will be more bearable on judgment day for the wicked cities in the Old Testament than for Bethsaida and Capernaum. Now, upon further reflection, this, this kind of makes sense, right? None of the Old Testament cities mentioned here had God himself in their midst doing miracles. Not only this, but Jesus, as God, had contingent knowledge of what Tyre and Sidon, for example, would have done if his miracles had been performed in those cities. And according to Jesus, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. Scripture gives an account of several of Jesus' miracles that he performed in Capernaum. Maybe you'll remember the healing of the centurion's servant, the paralytic, the official son in John chapter 4. In fact, most scholars believe that Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 happened very close, close to Bethsaida. Now, I don't know about you, but I think if I saw someone take 12 fish and turn it into thousands of fish, you know, I'd like to think that I probably would be like, okay, I'm with that guy, you know? But uh, that's, that's probably all I would have needed to see. But they did not repent. They did not follow Jesus. Scripture doesn't shy away from the fact that just as there are varying degrees of happiness in heaven, there are also varying degrees of torment in hell. This is a hard truth, and this is where we're getting to that point in the hike where it's a little challenging. Look, at, look with me, if you will, at Luke chapter 12, verses 47 to 48, where Jesus is here explaining the meaning of the parable of the master who comes home from a wedding. He says this in the parable, and that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. And then in Romans chapter 2, 
Paul outlines God's justified judgment for sin, saying this, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, they will be wrath, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Wow, guys, these are hard passages. As a pastor and the son of a pastor, someone who's grown up in the church all my life, you know, I'm particularly aware of these passages. The last thing I want to do is know a lot about Jesus, but not know him personally. If you have a Bible in your hand this morning, and I I believe most of us do, or maybe a Bible app, uh, then you're more privileged than most Christians in this world today. Many of us have multiple Bibles at home. The very fact that you're seated here today tells me that you have been or you are now being presented with the truth of the gospel. Guys, Americans are drunk on Christian resources and yet have never been more spiritually dry. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is going to be judged harshly, it is us. The other day I overheard two people um, talking in my favorite cafe as I waited for my coffee, and um, they're actually talking about what they were going to give up for Lent. Now, when I hear a conversation like that in Massachusetts, my ear perks up, and I'm like, oh, I've got to listen in, because uh, I don't hear that often. And one of them was recounting a conversation that she had had with a friend who, in response to the question, what are you going to give up for Lent? The friend said, I'm just giving up. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, that, that's how, I mean, some of us probably feel that way. <laughs> Maybe, maybe that's you. Maybe, maybe you just need to give up. Maybe. Maybe you need to stop playing games with God. Maybe you need to stop piling judgment on yourself. Stop pretending. Give up your desire for a, su- a successful career, the perfect spouse, the life you think you deserve, and follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. All right. So how's, how's your picture of Jesus looking now? Is the true picture of Jesus coming into focus? And if so, what are you going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? Well, let's continue. Now, in the final six verses of our text this morning, we're met with what amounts to three separate utterances of Jesus that at first glance appear to have no connection to one another. I'm like, Todd, why did you give me this passage? <laughs> I could easily preach sermon on each of these different passages in these, these different verses, but, so, but this, is, this is where we're at. We, we got to get through Matthew at some point, right? You know, we can't, we can't be here for decades. So a prayer of thanksgiving in verses 25 to 26, and then there's a reiteration, reiteration of Jesus' authority in verse 27, and then finally there's an invitation to find rest in Jesus in verses 28 to 30. All right, so here we go. Starting in verse 25, we read this. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding 
and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. The phrase, at that time, in some translations is translated at that hour, could mean, as some commentators, commentators have noted, that the 72 disciples that Jesus sent out, they've now come back, and they've, been, they've given them a positive report. And Jesus is saying, man, this is great. Lord, thank you for all that you have done. And he's thanking his Father because of the positive message, the positive response to his disciples' message. But it's hard to imagine that they would have been much more successful than Jesus. So given this, Jesus' prayer likely comes directly after his pronouncements of judgments in verses 20 to 24. And he's instead simply thanking the Father for those to whom the truth has been revealed, namely to his little children. If this is the case, and I, I think it is, then the wise and understanding people that Jesus refers to here are almost certainly more than just the scribes and the Pharisees, as some have suggested. Given the additional fact that Jesus was followed by crowds and that he's just pronounced woes on entire generations and towns, a broader group of people is probably in view here. These are people who, they love to hear themselves talk. These are people who arrogantly dismiss arguments for God, not realizing that they've set themselves up as gods. This idea that Jesus' message is spiritually discerned is a theme that runs throughout all of Scripture, and many of you know some of these verses, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 19 to 20, Paul says this, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And then James, likewise in James 4, 6, many of us know this verse, reminds us that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, little children here, it's, it's not referring just to little kids, but it's referring to those who have a childlike faith. Those who, like children, are undeterred by any preconceived notions of what God must be like. They don't try to limit what God can do. Man, I know this all too well. I've got three smaller kids, small kids at home, and I'm always amazed at the faith of children. Not too long ago, I was, um, I was asking our youngest, Adonai, uh, what she wanted for her birthday. And uh, with the utmost seriousness, she said, uh, Daddy, I want a beach. I was like, oh, okay, you want a, you want a beach for your birthday. <laughs> All right, not, you know, it's reasonable enough. Yeah, I, I really like beaches, Daddy. I really like beaches. Like, oh, okay, yeah. You know, I, I didn't want to, um, I didn't really know how to respond. Like, I didn't want to dash her hopes and like, I don't know, beach, I don't know. Well, you know, I, I said, uh, you know, you can always ask for it, but we, we don't always get what we, want, what we want, right? And then noticing that I was a little hesitant, uh, that she may not get her beach, she said, Daddy, don't you know it can be found on Amazon? <laughs> Just get it on Amazon. So, like, oh, okay. Actually, I probably do have it on Amazon. I haven't checked, but maybe you can get a beach. Um, but you, you got to love the faith of a child. Is this how you would describe your faith? Is, would you ask for a beach for your birthday? Would you describe it as childlike, or are you always putting Jesus on trial? Please note, I'm not saying that we should have faith, that we shouldn't have a faith seeking understanding. 
Or that sometimes the best we can do is cry out, I believe, help my unbelief. But this does not mean, but this does mean that if your posture towards Jesus is a hardened skepticism, a skepticism that arrogantly says, prove yourself, Jesus. Show me a sign, Jesus. Come down off that cross, Jesus. Then I would graciously submit to you that your faith is dead. It should humble, and I dare say frighten many of us, that the truth of God's word may be hidden from us and that this is the will of God. And the reason this is the gracious will of God is because if God were not to hide it from you, your judgment would be that much greater. Jesus further asserts his sovereignty in verse 27, claiming that all things have been handed over to me. All things likely refers to all authority here. And you'll remember that the high priestly prayer of Jesus found in John 17, this is how he prays. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has authority over all flesh. He is the image of the invisible God. He holds all creation together. He existed in the beginning with God. He is the firstborn over all creation. In him and through him and to him are all things. Not only that, but his, his authority extends what theologians like to call the doctrine of election. The idea that faith is a gift and that a person is saved only because Jesus has chosen to reveal himself to that person, not because there is anything good in them that would cause them to seek after God. How else are we to understand verse 27, at the end of verse 27? Look again with me at verse 27. Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. And then he says this, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. We can't gloss over this. The obvious teaching here is that no one can know the Father unless Jesus chooses to reveal him to that person. But this, of course, raises all kinds of thorny questions. Probably the, the biggest question here is, if Jesus only reveals himself to some, then is our free will a farce? Is it, is it just a mere fiction? How can Jesus, for example, hold the people of Capernaum responsible for not repenting when they had no ability to do otherwise? These are difficult questions to be sure, and we don't have time to fully discuss all the answers to, uh, to the, these questions this morning. But one thing we can say is that Jesus is completely sovereign, and man's will is completely free in every sense of the word, and that the two are in some way compatible. Now, if, if you want more information about this, I wrote a whole dissertation on this topic, and please come to me afterwards. I can share with you some helpful resources. But when it comes to mysteries like the compatibleness of God's divine sovereignty and man's free will, the problems of evil, the Trinity, it's important that we uphold all that Scripture upholds and nothing less, regardless of whether it seems, if it seems to make sense to our finite minds. 
Now, please, please hear me, though. Please hear me. I'm not saying that we should check our reason at the door. What I am saying, however, is that while the mysteries of Scripture pass the non-contradiction test, our minds are finite. We do not have the mind of God. And because of this, we sometimes need to hold these deep truths in tension. Now, with that caveat, while we're not told in our passage exactly how Jesus' sovereignty and man's free will align, what we are told is the Son chooses those to whom he will reveal himself, and the people of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum are entirely culpable because of their refusal to repent. One commentator puts it like this, and I think this is about as good as you can say it. He says, Jesus' Jesus's balance mirrors the balance of Scripture. He could simultaneously denounce the cities that did not repent and praise the God who does not reveal. For God's sovereignty and election is not mitigated by man's stubbornness and sin, while man's responsibility is in no way diminished by God's good pleasure that sovereignly reveals and conceals. All right. So I think we've done away with any idea that, that Jesus is... This, any notion of the idea that Jesus is a milquetoast, quiet, moral teacher. Now here we see him claiming ultimate authority, equating himself with God, having the ability to reveal God's plan of salvation to some and not to others. Not exactly the kinds of words that a stable person says. At this point, like C.S. Lewis famously said, we're left with only three options. Either he's a liar, he's clinically insane, or he's God. There's no neutral ground. Now, in our final verses, Jesus shows that he's not completely at home with being, he's not only completely at home with being the street preacher, the ultimate master of the universe, but he's also a gentle mentor who longs to see his followers experience true rest for their souls. So here we come along that, that path. We're going along the hike. It's a little bit rough, a little bit smoother here. We see a more gentle picture of Jesus, the same Jesus. Read with me in verses 28 to 30. He says this. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So some of you will remember, I actually preached a sermon on um, this passage just two, about two months ago. And um, don't worry, I'm not going to preach it again. I'm not going to preach that entire sermon again to you now. But um, I do think some of the stuff that I covered then bears repeating now. First, you may recall Eugene Peterson's rendering of this passage in the message translation. Um, I've come to enjoy some of the message translation. Uh, if, if you do have a copy of the message translation, I wouldn't use that as a study Bible. Um, but I like referring to it on occasion. And in the message translation, I love the way Eugene Peterson so eloquently captures the essence of what Jesus is trying to convey in, this, in these verses. So Peterson says it like this. He says, are you tired? This is his translation of this passage. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. 
I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Notice, first of all, that it's Jesus, not the Father, who gives rest. To quote Peterson, we're to learn the unforced rhythms of grace from observing the life of Jesus. Dallas Willard, in his book, The Spirit of the the Disciplines, tells us that the secret to the easy yoke that Jesus is talking about here is not found in knowing more about Jesus, more about Jesus' life. It's found in adopting his lifestyle, or in other words, in apprenticing Jesus. Now, I'm sure this is the case for you, but whenever I call for an electrician or a plumber, it's never just one person that shows up, right? There's always two or three people. There's always one master electrician, and then maybe two or three others in tow. Um, I'll just make a side note here. Uh, Electricians and plumbers love coming to our house because my wife always offers them coffee. And it's like, (laughs) it's not like your normal black coffee. It's like nice latte coffee. So they keep showing up sometimes. It's like, don't don't worry, I'm not going to charge you. Just keep, I don't know. Um, So once once they arrive and once they've had their coffee, um, it usually doesn't take long to figure out who has the answers to the questions, right? There's usually that one guy that you're like, you're like, okay, who's, okay, you're the, you're the one that has answers to all my questions. <clears throat> so this is kind of how it is with following Jesus. You know, a lot of times, um, you know, we're, we're kind of like, we're kind of like the tagalongs. We're, we're the people in tow, right? Jesus is the master. We're to closely observe the rhythms of his life how he interacts with crowds, with followers, with his father. We're to follow his example in prayer and what it means to rest or Sabbath and what it looks like to conduct ourselves as a follower of Jesus while we're going about our business in the kingdom of man. You know, a good apprentice is one who is teachable. I know it's time to get a new electrician or plumber when the apprentice seems to know more than the teacher. Either the master's no good or the apprentice thinks way too highly of himself. Either scenario is not good. A good apprentice is curious, inquisitive. In a word, they're like a child. They know what they don't know, and they're dependent learners. We're to be apprenticing Jesus. One other thing to note here is that most scholars see Jesus' use of the phrase, rest for our souls, as an allusion to an Old Testament passage in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 6.16, where the Lord instructs his people to travel the godly path so that they might find rest for their souls. If Jesus is in fact alluding to this verse, and I think he he could be, it just serves to further illustrate that Jesus is here talking about biblical living as a means to finding rest. In this light, Jesus' hearers likely would have heard him saying something like this, guys, stop carrying all of those burdensome restrictions that that were never really intended in the Old Testament. You know, those restrictions that you think are going to win you favor with God. Instead, learn from my way of living. Trust me, my commands are not heavy. I actually love how Augustine condenses this truth down to its simplest form. In response to how Christians to live, Augustine just says, love God and do what you want. Love God and do what you want. Now, I'm not ready to uh, tell my 10-year-old that verse just yet, but the essence of Augustine's dictum is true, right? Love God and do what you want. This is not a 100-page tax form. It's not even a postcard. It's simply love God and everything else will inevitably fall into place and work itself out. 
How refreshing is that? I already, already feel more at rest in just knowing that. All right, let's conclude. So maybe you remember the question that Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew 16. It's the same question that we need to answer today. He asked them, who do people say that I am? Some were saying that he was John the Baptist. Some were saying Elijah. They said, you know, Jesus, some are saying you're Jeremiah, some of the Old Testament prophets. And then Jesus makes it a bit more, brings it a bit more close to home, a little bit more personal. And he looks at them and he says, who do you say that I am? Peter replies, and fortunately gets it right. He says that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. This is the most important question for our generation, for every generation that's followed the death of Christ. This is the question that confronts all of us. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Do you see him as a kind charlatan or as a crazed lunatic? Or do you see him as the judgment pronouncing, sovereignly electing, gentle mentor who offers eternal rest for your soul, the son of the living God that he is. How do you see Jesus? I pray that you see him for who he is, the one in whom all of life finds its meaning, the one who is the very embodiment of love. Now, at the close of Rebecca McLaughlin's little devotional book that I told you guys about last week, uh, that I'm sure all of you have read by now, Uh, She writes this, getting at the heart of who Jesus is. This is what she says. She says, the claim that life is found in Jesus in John 11, 21 to 26. And you'll remember there, Jesus Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. She says, this is unbelievable. Jesus is declaring that he's not just someone who can bring dead people back to life. He's claiming that relationship with him is what it means to be alive. If we're joined to him, not even death can kill us. If we're not with him, our bodies may be living for a time, but we're spiritually dead. He is the great creator God made man, the one who gave us life to start with, and by his death and resurrection, he can give us everlasting life beyond the grave. So how bad is it then to spend eternity apart from Jesus? And you'll remember in her final chapter, it's something like, you know, is this really desirable? Is this, is this Jesus really something that we want? She says, how bad is it to spend eternity apart from Jesus? It's worse than anything we could imagine. If Jesus is the thing he claims to be, the source of love and life itself, not having Jesus is a fate much worse than death. There is no third way set apart for those who think they're mostly decent people who don't really need a savior. There's only everlasting life with Jesus, or eternal, soul-destroying, and hope-extinguished death. Now, if you are one of the, hundred, the record 123 million people who watched the recent Super Bowl, then you may have seen some of the He Gets Us commercials that aired during that game. The He Gets Us campaign is a campaign, campaign that was started by a few wealthy Christians to present a more relatable Jesus to a new generation. And while I'm not a big fan of all of their ads, I think many of them are very well done and, and they have a good message. And at the end of the ads, there's a, a, a website and you know, it points people back to their website and you can find some helpful resources. There um, are different Bible reading plans. 
and things like that. Just resources to help people who may be searching, find out more about Christianity, but also go deeper in their faith if they're a believer. What you may not have seen, though, was another short ad that aired online shortly after the Super Bowl, put out by a pastor in the UK. It was entitled, He Saves Us. Take a look. So that, hey guys, am I? Oh, thank you. Uh, So that was not the soundtrack that goes with that video, but that's totally fine. Uh, I would would encourage you, hey, it was was not bad. I would encourage you to go home and look at it and to watch it. Um, I think it just, it takes that message one step further. It's a message we need to hear, right? That not only does Jesus get us, and he does, but he also saves us.